Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 16, and this morning we are looking at the second half of verse 4 through verse 15. If you have the ESV, there's probably a paragraph change there in the middle of verse 4. I'll be picking up halfway through verse 4, and we'll read through verse 15. Please give your attention to God's word. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Have you ever been asked to do a job for which you are dangerously ill-equipped? Sounds like almost every home repair job I've ever tried. I'm sure many of you have had the experience of sitting at your desk or in your workplace or on the job, your very first day on the job, and you have no clue about what you're supposed to do. And you just offer that prayer and you say, Lord, Help me to learn this job quickly before I destroy something or ruin everything. The fear of being asked to do a job for which you are ill-equipped. In this section of John's Gospel, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a job like that. He is preparing them for his imminent departure. Within hours, he will be leaving them in a way that they don't yet understand. As he says here in the text we just read, now I am going to him who sent me. Put yourself in the sandals of these first disciples. He's leaving them. And not only that, but as we saw last week when we read the passage just before this, he's actually given them some very hard news. He said, you know how the world hates me? You know how... The Jewish leadership is trying to kill me. You know how strong that hostility is towards me? After I'm gone, they're going to hate you the same way. They're going to hate his disciples, Jesus tells them, because they look like him, they will talk like him, 
They will be under his lordship. Their allegiance to his lordship, we saw in last week's passage, is going to expose the sin and guilt of the world, and it's going to make their hatred even more intense. Well, how are they to respond? If Jesus was leaving his disciples and the hatred of the world is going to be unleashed against them, what are they supposed to do? Hide? Run away? Keep a low profile? Blend in as much as possible? No. We saw at the end of chapter 15, he says their response is to go out and bear witness to him. In other words, disciples, I'm leaving you here, the hostility of the world. They hate me, and because they hate me so much, and because you're one with me, they're going to hate you too. As that hatred is unleashed against you, what I want you to do is go out there and tell them all about me. It's kind of like the Lord telling Daniel, Daniel, I'm going to send you into the lion's den, and when you get there, I want you to pour some A1 sauce all over yourself. You know, basically... wave some raw meat in front of the lions. Do something, you know, that's going to make them hate you even more. They were dangerously ill-equipped for the job that the Lord was giving to them. We talked last week quite a bit about how our culture is very overtly, very observably becoming very hostile, much more hostile than it has been to the gospel to Jesus Christ, and to the church. And we need to be prepared. As we read these passages where Jesus is preparing the first disciples, we need to understand how he prepared them because we have been prepared in much the same way. We need to understand, as we see in this passage that we read today, the resources that are available to us as his disciples. Back in chapter 14, we saw that Jesus told his disciples that after he was gone, he would not leave them as orphans, he said, but that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them, to be his very presence with them, to protect them, and to enable them to do what he called greater works than he had done. Now, it's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't active among God's people before Christ came. Otherwise, great saints of the Old Testament, men like Abraham and Moses and David, they would have never even believed if the Holy Spirit was not active. The world would not have endured without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. So the Holy Spirit was active on the earth before Christ came, But the whole Old Testament, over and over again, promised that there was coming a kingdom. That the king, the Messiah, would come to earth, and when he came, he would establish a kingdom where the Holy Spirit would be active in very visible and powerful ways. That somehow, when the Messianic king came and brought the kingdom on earth, the Holy Spirit would be unleashed so that God's people would do great works that they would not otherwise be able to do. And that through God's people doing these great works, the whole world, not just the Jewish nation, but the whole world would be transformed. That's what the Old Testament prophets had promised. Joel, for example, in chapter 2 said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, 
Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. In the Old Testament, once in a while, you just get a glimpse of this power and gifting. When the Holy Spirit would come upon certain men like Samson or David or or Saul to empower them to do something great. But it was a temporary thing. It was only a glimpse of what it would be like in the kingdom era. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, on that promised day when the Holy Spirit did descend upon earth in that special way, Peter used Joel's prophecy as his text, read that passage, and said to the people of Jerusalem on that day, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit had come. And that's what that great day is, the day that Jesus is talking about here in John 16. He says in verse 7, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper... The word there in the original Greek is paraclete. It means one who comes alongside to help. The helper will not come to you unless I go away. Now it kind of begs the question, why did Jesus have to go away first before the Holy Spirit would come on earth? Why did it have to be that way? One commentator, I like this quote, he said, the reason that Jesus had to go away before the Holy Spirit could come, wasn't metaphysical. It was eschatological. In other words, the reason is not due to some spiritual or physical law that says that somehow the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, couldn't somehow occupy the same geographical space on earth at the same time. That's not why. It's because of the eschatology of God. In other words, the plan of God, the plan of redemption for all history, that the Son had to go away so that the Spirit could come and unleash its power on earth. That was God's plan to save us. When Jesus talked about going away, we've seen it over and over and over in these last few chapters. When he talks about going away, he's talking about going to the cross to be crucified. He's talking about offering up his life voluntarily as the only perfect man, both God and man, the only perfect man who ever lived on the face of the earth. He voluntarily went to the cross and offered up his life as a substitute, as a sacrifice in the place of me, in the place of you. He died and bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved. And having done that, having offered the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins, having made atonement, having reconciled us to God through his death on the cross, then he was raised from the dead. Thereby God the Father showed that he'd accepted that sacrifice, that the work of salvation was complete, that we were secure in Christ, and then he ascended to the throne in heaven. And he has at that point established his kingdom on earth. He reigns over the earth. He is Lord over the earth. He is reigning today as our risen king. It's in that context. He says, I had to go away and accomplish that. I had to go away, defeat sin, defeat death, 
and ascend to the throne so that I could send the Holy Spirit to do his job, to do his work, to accomplish his mission. And his mission is to make the kingdom visible on earth. Christ reigns, but it's not very obvious when you read the morning paper. Christ reigns. He is Lord. But so much of the earth seems so out of control and in chaos. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the Lordship of Christ to bear upon the earth so that we might see it manifested on the earth. And so let's talk about this mission of the Holy Spirit because that's what this passage is about. Back in verse 26 of chapter 15, he said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Don't ever forget that. As difficult as this job is that the Lord has given to us to stay here on earth and to bear witness about Christ, it's not primarily our mission, it's primarily the mission of the Holy Spirit. We are his helpers. We are his assistance to do the mission that he has been called to do. It's his mission first and foremost. We talk about the book of Acts. You can look at the book of Acts and say, wow, look at the great things that the church accomplished in the book of Acts. But as we know, it shouldn't be called the Acts of the Disciples. It was called, or the Acts of the Church, it was the Acts of the Holy Spirit. As the kingdom spread through the Roman Empire in the book of Acts. And so Jesus describes what the mission of the Holy Spirit is. And he first of all describes it in relation to what is his work in the world. Remember we said last week the world is what happens when you take a bunch of sinful, rebellious, fallen people who reject Christ, reject God's law, who reject the kingdom. You take all those people and organize them, put together in a culture or society, a government, a religion, whatever form you put them together, they form corporately the world as the Bible talks about it. And what's interesting is that Jesus, before he talks about the work of the Spirit in the church to enable us to accomplish this great mission together, he talks about his work in the world. In verse 8 he says, And when he, the helper, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now I have to stop for a moment and talk about that word convict. What does he mean, convict? In English, when we talk about convicting someone... We use the word in two different ways. In one sense, we can talk about convicting somebody like a prosecuting attorney. We can show somebody to be guilty, whether or not they acknowledge it or not. And in that context, usually the person doesn't admit it, even if he is guilty. But irregardless, you can say that that person is convicted because his guilt has been shown, whether he admits it or not. And we use the word convict in that sense. But there's also a second sense in which we use the word, where we actually bring a person to the place where they acknowledge their guilt. You can bring somebody to the point of conviction of their guilt. What's interesting is in the original Greek, the word that's used here, it means both, has those, both those same meanings that it has in English. And so it's actually interesting, as you try to read the scholars, the commentators, the pastors of all the ages, they've tried to, to interpret this text correctly, they've really been very divided on which sense in which the word convict is used here. Does it mean that the Holy Spirit goes out to show that the world is sinful or guilty 
or to bring the world to an awareness of its guilt in that sense of conviction. Well, I think it's helpful, and what I did this week is try to go through all the rest of the uses of this term in the the New Testament, and the very strong, predominant meaning of this word when it's used in context in the New Testament, it means to, whether you're talking about the Spirit, you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about an apostle, or talking about a believer, when it's used in that context, the meaning is to show someone their guilt and to call upon them to repent. So I'm going to take it in that sense. And so Jesus is saying that the work of the Spirit in the fallen world, this world that in its very nature is hostile to Christ and hostile to us, his work is to show them their guilt and call upon them to repent. He mentions in verses 9 through 11, this is kind of a difficult passage, part of the passage, where he describes that conviction. And he's very succinct, very brief, in describing that conviction and what he says, each one of these phrases is somewhat open to interpretation. But I think in that context, let me try to take a stab at what he means. He says, it's conviction of sin, first of all. He says, because they do not believe in me. He convicts the world. He shows them their guilt and calls them to repent of not believing in him. Because ultimately, when you think about it, sin is not just breaking rules. Sin is not just violating God's rule book. Sin is ultimately not believing in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's the ultimate of sin is unbelief. And really, the root of all sin is unbelief. And so, the Holy Spirit goes out into the world to bring conviction of its unbelief in Christ. Secondly, conviction of righteousness, he says, because I go to the Father. Now, again, we've said every time he talks about going to the Father or going away, he's talking about going to the cross. So what the Holy Spirit does is he goes out into the world to convict the world that it is wrong about the cross, about the departure of Jesus. And this relates to righteousness because before you understand what the cross is about, your only hope is in your own righteousness, self-righteousness, your own good works. But what the cross says to us is that your good works, no matter how good you are in the eyes of men, your good works are not enough. You need what we've called before an alien righteousness, someone else's righteousness, a perfect righteousness so that God can accept you. And that's what the cross is all about. The cross is about how do we become righteous in the sight of God. And when Christ was raised from the dead, he was vindicated. He was shown to be righteous, and his sacrifice was shown to be accepted. And so, therefore, we receive this gift of alien righteousness by faith alone. That's what the cross is about. And the Holy Spirit goes out into the world to bring conviction about the means of righteousness. And then thirdly, Jesus says, conviction of judgment. He says, because the ruler of this world is judged. This reminds me of what he said back in chapter 12, verse 31, speaking of his own crucifixion. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now we think of the ruler of this world, the dragon, Satan, that we've been talking about. We think of him being cast down and cast out at the end of all time. But Jesus made it very clear that when he came as the true messianic king, 
then in a very real sense, Satan was cast out, cast down, defeated once for all, and it happened at the cross. That Satan was judged and condemned, and he lost the war, the battle, at that point. And the true king was raised from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the true king now reigns over the earth. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he goes out into the world to open the eyes of the unbeliever to show him that the king that he's been following is destined for destruction and his condemnation is already in place and that the true king is on the throne. Let me bring this all back to our mission. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit, to go out into the world to bring conviction to unbelievers to us has been given the very simple mission to bear witness. It's not our job to bring conviction in the heart of an unbeliever. That's the Holy Spirit's job. If you don't remember that, if you don't hold on to that, you're going to be so discouraged and a sense of defeat and weakness and powerlessness as you go out into the world to do your mission. Your mission is to Bear witness to tell people about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Simply. Once you've done that, your job is done. It's the Holy Spirit's job to go before you, to go into the world that naturally hates you and hates Christ, to bring conviction, to change their perspective, to open their eyes, to soften their heart, to make them receptive to this very simple message that you have to tell them. When I was first saved, I was beat down for years by bad evangelism training methods. Most of the evangelism training that I got as a new believer would have fit very well out there in the corporate world or in the retail world because it was basically salesman training. How do you persuade people? How do you manipulate people so that you can close the deal and make the sale? And because I viewed evangelism that way, I walked around as a defeated, discouraged Christian, especially as an introvert Christian. I hated it. I felt like I failed daily. But it wasn't until I came to understand the deeper teaching of Scripture that it's not my job to bring conviction. It's not my job to change anybody's heart. I can't do it. What the Lord has called upon me to do is to tell the truth. Just share the truth. Not just with my mouth, but the way I live. Be a witness to who Jesus Christ is and then rely completely upon the spirit to make that message develop roots and bear fruit in the life of an unbeliever that's his work that's what Jesus is talking about back when he was talking to Nicodemus about how a person comes into this kingdom and recognizes the true king he says in John chapter 3 unless one is born again And he defines that as being born of the Spirit. Unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And then he talked about how that part of the work, enabling somebody to both see and enter the kingdom of God by faith, how that's not our job. And to emphasize that, he goes on to say something kind of cryptic. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying, I would love to be able to control the wind. We've got a picnic coming up later, and I hear there's possibility of high winds and hail. I would love to be able to just kind of 
wave my hands and move that wind around State College so we could have our picnic, but I don't have that power. I feel bad for weathermen. They are scientists who are so out of control of what they're designed to study. And, you know, we don't control the wind, and Jesus says, neither do you control the Holy Spirit. I would love to point, go out and take my spiritual paint and paint a nice big target on the back of all the believers that I want to be saved. All the people that are hostile to Christ and hostile to the gospel that I would love to have their eyes open, their ears open, their minds changed, their hearts changed. But I don't, God's not given me that job. I don't have the power or the ability to do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we don't know where he's working. We just keep, need to keep telling the truth and living the truth and resting and relying upon the Spirit to go before us, to prepare hearts. When my father-in-law retired, he bought a small farm and started raising draft horses. And at that time, when he bought the draft horses, I didn't know what a draft horse was. The only horses, I didn't grow up on a farm or near farms. The only horses I knew were the race horses I saw on television. And, and uh, so when we went up to the, visit the farm for the first time, I saw these horses out in the field. And I thought they were a long way off, but as we walked up close to them to meet them, I realized they, that, you know, that as I got closer to them, these things were getting bigger and bigger. I don't know if you've ever been around draft, I mean, really up next to a draft horse. It'll take your breath away. Those things are huge. I mean, the shoulder was up at my eye level. The shoulder of the horse was at my eye level, let alone where his big old head was. And, and these things, they're thick. They're like two or three horses thick. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but they're, they're really huge creatures. And when I walked up to them the first time, literally, I had that same feeling like when I first walked up to the Niagara Falls. You know, like, wow, these things are huge and powerful. Well, I admired them from a, you know, a reasonable distance. And, and I watched as my father-in-law hooked them up. He hitched them up together in a two-horse hitch and hooked them up to his wagon. And he took my wife and my kids and myself on a trip around the farm in the wagon. We enjoyed it greatly. And once the ride was over, he parked the wagon and unhitched the, the wagon and still had the horses hitched to each other. And he says, oh, wait a minute, there's something up at the barn I need. I'm going to run up there for a minute. Could you hold these guys? <laughs> he handed me these two flimsy pieces of leather. And I'm standing there at the head of these monsters. And I'm like, you know, he leaves. I'm like, you realize I'm totally powerless. I, I can't do anything. If these guys decide they want to stomp on me, I'm going to be stomped on. If they decide they want to take off across the field, they're going to go. But amazingly, they stood there quietly. He was gone too long and then came back. (laughs) And I handed over the reins and I was amazed because he had done such great work in training them. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes sharing the gospel, bearing witness to Christ, feels very much like I did that day, holding the reins of something that's powerful that could destroy me. But if the Holy Spirit goes before you and tames the hostile heart of an unbeliever, it's amazing. Have you ever had that experience where you totally blow it sharing the gospel? You give a really poor example of what it means to tell people the truth but yet because the holy spirit's working in that other person they say oh that was so helpful i feel that way after preaching a lot of the time but you know that was so helpful 
because the Spirit had opened their ears and made them receptive to the message. Well, that's the first thing, and so comforting to us in this job that the Holy Spirit, or that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us, is that He's given us the job to bear witness, but He's given the Holy Spirit the job to bring conviction. The second thing the Holy Spirit was sent to do was to bring truth to the church. Let me read to you verses 12 and 13 of chapter 16 again. Jesus said to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, he didn't leave us weaponless, didn't leave us defenseless in the world. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we would have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What's interesting is often I hear these verses applied to us as individual believers living today in the work of the kingdom, but the application isn't to us, not directly anyway. The direct application of these words is to these 12 or the 11 disciples at the time that he was talking to, the apostles. These words are for the apostles. It's a promise to those apostles whom he had chosen that they would have a unique role in the history of the world that they would be God's spokesmen, that they would be on the same level as the great Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and David, that they would be given the awesome privilege of receiving God's word and passing it on to other sinners. Already, if you remember back in chapter 14, Jesus had promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit so that they could remember. Back in chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That was a promise that he would enable them to faithfully, accurately, without error and with power, communicate to the rest of the world what Jesus had already taught them and what he had done so that we would have the four glorious gospels that we have in the Bible so that we would know Jesus Christ. He promised that the Holy Spirit would enable them to perfectly, accurately relay what Jesus had taught them and had done in their presence. But then here Jesus adds to that promise because he says to them that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth. And, he says, he will declare to you the things that are to come. And what he's describing there is the rest of the New Testament. He says, I I am going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can write the four Gospels, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can write the New Testament epistles and the prophecies to complete the Bible. That's what he's promising in plain and simple terms. So that God's people will always have his word. And these apostles understood that as they were teaching and as they were writing down what the Holy Spirit was giving to them as revelation from God, they understood their unique authority. Let me give you some proofs of that. First of all, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to how Paul speaks to the Thessalonians about his authority as the one who brought the word of God to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 
He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He explains more of this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He talks about the kind of internal dynamics of this. He says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12, Now we, the apostles, have, not received, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Is there any question that Paul understood that when he taught and when he wrote, he was giving revelation from God by the power of the Holy Spirit, that his words were to be taken as though they were breathed out, that they were from the very lips of God himself. And then Peter, just to pull on one of the other apostles, Peter in 1 Peter uh, chapter, uh, 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the other great work of the Holy Spirit in enabling us to accomplish the mission of making the, vis- the, vis- the kingdom of Jesus Christ visible on earth is that he gives us the written word of God. The Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And that is why we are able to succeed. The work of the Holy Spirit in the apostles is the reason that the Bible is not just the words of men, as many claim today, even in the church, that it is. It is the word of God without error and directly from him. It is the work of the Spirit then, now that those scriptures have been complete, the apostles have completed that work, and we have the totality of God's revelation, everything that we need for faith and life contained in these scriptures, Now that we have God's word, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to not only bring conviction to the world, but also to continue to open our eyes, to continue to open our ears as those who already believe so that we might receive, understand, and apply God's word. When you think of the day of Pentecost, again, going back to that day when the Holy Spirit arrived on earth, It's interesting that from that very first moment that the Holy Spirit arrived to do this special work of making the kingdom visible, you saw exactly what Jesus described playing out on that day. Because Peter, remember the Peter who cowered before a servant girl and denied with curses three times that he knew Jesus Christ, the same Peter on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood boldly before thousands upon thousands of many of them hostile Jews in Jerusalem, and preached the gospel, bore witness to who Jesus Christ is and what he had done. And actually, it's interesting, I'll challenge you to do this. Go to Acts 2, read his sermon carefully, and everything he says in that sermon lines up with what Jesus said that the word of God would, would bring about in unbelievers through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the sin directly of those people. He says, you rejected Christ, you crucified Christ. And then he says, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and God has lifted him up and placed him on the throne over all of mankind and he will reign it says until the father makes his enemies his footstool 
That was the message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit gave him that message. And the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of the people listening to that message so that we see the result is this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And on that day, 3,000 were added to the church. That's really the testimony of the entire book of Acts. That's really the testimony of the history of the church. That as the church faithfully bears witness to Christ, as the church presents the scriptures to the world, as it all points to Christ, that the Holy Spirit going before the church prepares those whom he has chosen to receive that message and the church grows and the kingdom of God, as those people live under the lordship of Christ, the kingdom of God becomes apparent, manifest, obvious before this fallen world. And the biggest tragedy in the last century of the church, and it's been true in the last century of the church like it's never been true in any other period of church history, the biggest tragedy has been how the church has consistently, increasingly departed from the word of God that the Spirit has given. Without the truth, we have no mission. And so many organizations that go by the name of Christian church have taken away the authority of the word of God. They've given it up. They've allowed it to be chipped away piece by piece. We look at it happening in other countries, and I've been sharing with the church family things that we talked about at the Israel General Assembly about the insider movement and, and missions among missionaries in Muslim countries. And it it's, 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 looks like success among Muslims because many people are claiming to become Christians and, become, and, and to become part of the kingdom, but the missionaries are telling them, live like Muslims, keep going to the mosque, keep reading the Koran, keep living the life of a Muslim and kind of hide your Christian faith so that you can stay and influence your culture. And one of the, 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 where it's really crossed the line is where they begin changing the scriptures and taking out titles for Christ that the Muslims found, find offensive, like son of God. Now we look at that and we shake our head and say, how could Christian missionaries do that? How could they change the word? How could they take things out of the word of God? How could they not live a life obviously under the lordship of Christ as a witness to the world around them. How could that happen? But honestly, it's happening in the church in America and it has been happening for a long time where we have been taking things out of the word of God that, is, that are offensive to our hostile culture so that we might gain acceptance. And we've been living lives that blend into the culture so that we might not cause offense to the world that's hostile around us. That's not what the, what the mission looks like. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction upon those who are being called to salvation and to give the truth to the church so that that change might take place. Transformation only happens through the truth. The Lord has given us a dangerous job. We are to bear witness to a world that hates Christ. We are to make it our mission to obey him and live under his lordship and imitate him and tell others about him whenever we have the opportunity to tell them about who he is according to the scriptures and what he has done according to the scriptures. As we go about that, we may suffer in this world. We probably will suffer, and the suffering may get a lot worse. But we are protected, ultimately. 
We are safe in the hands of our Lord. Let me just read this to you from Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have everything we need, each and every one of us, to complete the mission that God has given us in this fallen world. We have the Holy Spirit to go before us to convict sinners, and we have the words of the Holy Spirit, the very word of God in our hands. That's all we need. Let's pray for strength to be faithful. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Spirit. With the Spirit and the Bible, we have everything we need to make the kingdom manifest on earth as the Spirit goes before us to make it possible. Father, forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for our compromise. Forgive us for hiding, for blending in. Forgive us for even denying the word, either in what we say or what we do. But Lord, as we receive your forgiveness, may we take that message of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to the world that desperately needs to hear it. Bless us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.